So I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we read this text together. We're going to read Acts 8, verses 1 to 25 together. Acts 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is good news for everyone. And we pray now that as your spirit works, that he would work in a way that reaches each heart intimately. And we expect that you will show up and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The author of a massive book on my desk called Evangelism Through the Local Church, Michael Green, has proposed eight motives for evangelism. They are the love of God, the command of Jesus, the gift of the Spirit, the climax of history, the responsibility of the church, the privilege of Christians, the need of mankind, and the joy of mission. You don't have to write it down. It's on this last motive that I want you to consider this topic today. Joy. Joy. 
Verse 8 says that after Philip does evangelism, there was much joy in the city. And who here doesn't want joy? Can you imagine, imagine living with much joy? Or living in a city that has much joy? Imagine putting on the CTV news in the morning and hearing the reporters talking about the outbreak of joy in Ottawa. <laughs> Does our city need joy? What could bring much joy to our city? Well, it's the good news of Jesus, isn't it? The message of Jesus brings joy to the world and even to the city. So our city could be filled with much joy if the churches in our city were filled with the good news of Jesus. Well, let's see how the gospel moves into a city and fills it with much joy. Verse 1 to 3, we see an ironic opportunity for evangelism, persecution. Verse 1 to 3 says, And Saul approved of his persecution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 8 of Acts is set on the heels of Stephen's execution, his martyrdom. Stephen was a Christian man who confronted the religious leaders, and they killed him for it. And after he gets stoned to death, the Christians in Jerusalem are scattered all around. They become refugees on the run. And everyone except the apostles are relocated. Godly men have a funeral for Stephen and mourn his death. Well, at the same time, this Saul character is trying to wreck the church, splitting up families and throwing Christians in prison. What's so ironic in this scene in the church's history is that this great persecution causes the spread of the gospel through the church to do evangelism in other regions. What is meant to destroy the church and oppress the church is actually the means of expanding the church and spreading the church. We see in this text that God is sovereign, meaning He is in control. He's got this. He's never made a mistake in human history. Rather, God is in control of all things, all the time, even when His church is being persecuted. Some of you may have read about Pastor Wang in China, who wrote a declaration of faithful disobedience earlier in December. How many of you have read that? Saw that? A couple of you? He's been in prison for sharing the gospel, and many of his church members were arrested in the city of Chengdu. What struck me as I read this letter was his hatred of evil and his determination to love the people of China. His only prayer in the whole document was for patience and wisdom that he might take the gospel to the people that are imprisoning him. Just a couple sentences from that. He says this, those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and are actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that He would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. That's challenging, isn't it? He rightly sees His persecution, His suffering in the moment as an opportunity to speak the gospel to others. 
He seems to be trusting in God's sovereignty. God's got this. God's in control. And it's a challenge for us because in the modern Western world that we live in, there's a strange myth out there that says religion is a private matter that you keep to yourself. You think that idea comes from the Bible? You think Pastor Wang buys into that idea? The early church didn't seem to see danger as a reason to button up the message. Nor the church in China currently. The church is here to spread the message of Jesus. To spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And since God controls everything, we as Christians here and now need to be aware of the ironic ways God might be putting opportunities in front of us to do the same. And this is what we see next. God is sovereignly working through persecution so the church can do evangelism in the city. Look at verse 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The church is now scattered around preaching this message of Jesus. And Philip was inspired to go to the city of Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. So who was this Philip character? Chapter 6 says he was a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, and he had a good reputation. He was one of the first Christian leaders in the early church. But what's so striking about this Philip guy is that he's not an apostle. He's not a pastor. He's not a super Christian. He's just a Jesus-loving, authentic Christian with a good reputation. He was a sinner just like everyone else in the room here. But it appears that the gospel was real to Philip. It had gripped his heart. It had changed him. And I think the gospel had a deep impact on Philip because he does something quite scandalous. Not just because he speaks the gospel everywhere. We see that in the chapter uh, he goes to Samaria, but he also goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. Not just that. He goes to the city of Samaria speaking to a city, which means lots of Samaritans, about Jesus. I can imagine people being like, Philip, you know where you are, right, bro? You know where you are, right? This is Samaria. What are you doing here? He brings the message of Jesus across cultural boundaries. He is stepping out with the gospel. And when the gospel is real to us, it does that, doesn't it? When we feel the effects of the gospel in our hearts, when we realize that Jesus died and rose for our sin, our sin, we start thinking differently about those we used to look down on. We start thinking differently about those that we may have judged for a cultural, ethnic, social reason. You put differences aside because you see humanity is not divided by ethnicity or culture, or social status, but by people who are with Jesus and people who are not with Jesus. And so like Philip, you look around and you say, what about them? What about them? And you go and you don't care what it looks like because everyone is created as a reflection of God and in need of Jesus. And you keep it simple. And you go to them. He's not a super-Christian. Remember, he's not a super Christian. He's just a Jesus-loving, authentic Christian 
who's been changed by the gospel. Are you an authentic Christian? Have you been changed by the gospel? Do you love Jesus? Do you tell those around you about Jesus like Philip did? He went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. Church, let's think of creative and appropriate ways to tell others about Jesus this year, this new year that we're coming into. Are you an artist? How can you express your love for Christ through art? Are you a construction worker? How can you bring him into conversations at lunchtime? Are you a busy mom? How can you post things on social media that point to Jesus? How can you speak to those around you about Christ? I like to think of the gospel as music. A few days ago, I took the bus home from work, and there were three students from Immaculata sharing headphones and bobbing their heads to some music on the bus. They were locked in, listening to whatever the song was, swaying back and forth and singing aloud. And most of the bus was just sitting there, awkwardly, staring at their excitement getting bigger and bigger. I was tempted to ask them, what are you listening to? They seemed completely unaware of the other people on the bus around them. How many people in our lives see us doing the same thing? As Christians, we get excited about the gospel, and that's a wonderful thing. But we sway back and forth, listening to the music together, sharing it with one another, unaware of those around us that God has dropped in our way. How many people watch our lives and ask, what are they listening to? I think Philip was the kind of guy that couldn't keep the song of the gospel to himself. And it just bubbled out of him. He went and proclaimed to them the Christ. And surely that's the way to bring joy to the city, right? Jesus? Joy to the world? Philip gives us another hint into how the gospel moves into the city. He's not only speaking about Jesus, but he's doing evangelism with good deeds. Verses 6 through 8 says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip grabs the attention of the people in the city by what he says and does. This is a miracle. He meets their spiritual needs, bringing Jesus to them. They trust in Jesus. The city gets filled with joy, as we'll see in a minute. And he's meeting physical needs at the same time. He's doing good deeds. He speaks the message of Christ, and he does signs and exorcisms and healings. That's an awkward topic for most of us. In this text, though, what we are going to see is that the kingdom of God is breaking through. When the gospel is being preached and the Holy Spirit comes upon people, spiritual and physical needs are being met by God and the darkness is being forced out. You hear a lot about this when missionaries go to unreached mission fields because the gospel is pushing out the forces of darkness. Verse 7 says, The spirits are crying with a loud voice. But at the same time as this spiritual stuff is going on and physical needs are being met, 
there was much joy in that city. The gospel was breaking in and bringing joy. And what we see next is how evangelism impacts lives. Verses 9-13 through says this, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, seeing that he himself was something great, somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the, last, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So, put yourself in the scene. There's a showdown of power going on here. There's loyalties being switched right before Philip's eyes. This man, or sorry, Simon's eyes. This man, Simon, enters the scene. He had the attention of the crowd in the past. Now Philip's taking his limelight. Simon is a magician by trade. He's like Samaria's Chris Angel or David Blaine or Harry Houdini. He practiced magic in the city and amazed the people. They all hailed him as the man who is, as verse 10 says, the power of God that is called great, which is an ironic name. But now the people have changed loyalties because now they believe Philip and they're starting to follow Philip. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the people of Samaria believe the message about Jesus. And they're baptized. A sign of their loyalty now and their allegiance to Christ. And what's crazy is that Simon does too. He even follows Philip. But it looks like the gospel was a means to an end for Simon. Because if you look down to verse 19, it appears that he didn't want the gospel to get God. He wanted the gospel to get power. He said in Verse 19 to Peter, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted power from God so he could carry on with his magic shows and win back his audience. What's scary is that he was baptized and hung with the church. Yet he was only interested in the Gospel to get more power for himself and his ends. When I was about 14, I started lifting weights, and I absolutely love lifting weights, and I still love lifting, but uh, as you can see, I don't get to it often. <laughs> I used to go to the YMCA on Maryville Road where Olympic lifters would practice lifting weights, and watching them do squats and deadlifts and power cleans was inspiring as I was young, and, I would, and it would often, at that time, get a crowd of people watching. And I found that men usually have two responses to the display of power, of power lifting. They watch these guys lift weights and either, this is my observation, okay, I'll let you into my world a little bit here, but this is what I've seen after watching people lift weights and how guys respond to it. Either they celebrate and humbly inquire how to do the lift from the person, or, and most people do this, they carry on with lifting weights and they secretly resent the person in their heart. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> Some of you ladies are saying, you guys are so vain. And we, <laughs> we really are. So you'd nitpick, so, so people you'd be lifting with, and, and they're nitpicking the guys who are lifting way more weights than them. Oh, look at his form. He's not going all the way down. I could do that. <laughs> but the display of power evokes some emotional response. Paul says the gospel, not Simon, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And when we see and hear the power of the gospel in someone's life, it stirs a response from us. We either humbly inquire more about this gospel, leading to genuine change, or we carry on our lives bitterly resenting the good news. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. And I think verse 23 suggests that this is Simon's story. It just hardened him in his sin. My fear is every church has Simons in it. People who have been baptized. People who go to church regularly. People who say that they're Christians. People who go to small groups and Bible studies. Yet they're at odds with God. Their hearts aren't right before Him. What about you? Does the message of Jesus just anger you? Does the claim that Jesus is the only way to God cause you to be humbled? Or do you resent Jesus in Christianity? If you're humbly considering Jesus, keep coming to church. Keep asking questions. Keep reading the Bible. God will quench your inner thirst. In fact, I plan in the new year to do an inquirer's group um, where we could sit down as a group if you're just interested in learning more about this Christianity thing. And we'll sit together, we'll maybe have a few snacks together, and we'll consider whether or not Christianity is true. That's the question we want to ask. Because, I don't have the quote in my mind, but as C.S. Lewis says, basically, if it's true, it makes the world of difference. If it's not true, who cares? So if you're interested in coming to this inquirer's club, or inquirer's group, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to start getting a list of people together for that. But what we see in this text and throughout Scripture is that the Gospel forces people to make a decision. Even not deciding is deciding. It takes you to a fork in the road and the responses of people vary. And this is why we must trust God's sovereignty with our evangelism. We don't just do it because it works. We do it for the joy of the city, the eight reasons that Michael Green said, obedience to the commands, because God is working through His church to spread this gospel. We trust God's sovereignty with our evangelism. Verse 14 to 16 says this, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I love the book of Acts, but I'm often confused by it, if I can be honest. 
because it's set in history where many groundbreaking things are taking place all at the same time. And you come to a text like this, and I'm going to be honest, it confuses me. The apostles in this text, the apostles hear how Samaria is receiving the message and people in Samaria have been baptized in the name of Jesus. So Peter and Paul, or sorry, Peter and John come down to see these new believers so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. This is a gracious thing that they're doing. They want these people to receive the Spirit. Now, if we read other parts of the New Testament, we recognize that it also teaches that when we become Christians, we receive the Spirit immediately. And then we get baptized, right? You look at Romans, you look at some of the epistles, it's, it's pretty clear in the instruction that when you believe in Jesus, God gives you his Holy Spirit. He's poured out in your hearts, as Romans 5.5 5 says. But we're in this text here, and these people have believed they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. At this moment in history, the apostles mediated the Spirit by laying their hands on those who believed the gospel. You see that in verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's unique. That's that's a time in history that is different than ours. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Sharp words from the apostle Peter. He seems to be a little hot under the collar right now. But I think he's got a shepherd-like instinct right now. And he recognizes that the church in Samaria is brand new. It's young. And this Simon is a wolf with evil motives. And so he rebukes him. Simon sees the powerful work of the Spirit. And he offers the apostles money. So he can have the power. He says, I'll give you money, just give me the power. And Peter says, may your money die with you. You can't buy the gift of God. Evidently, Simon doesn't get the gospel. He doesn't get the gospel. And Peter says in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter does something here that I don't recommend, unless you're an apostle. He tells this man, who had already been baptized, that he's not saved. He says, your heart is not right with God. Daring. When we become Christians, we are married right with God. So it appears that Simon here is lost still. And we don't know people's hearts, which is why I say probably not a good practice. But we can see fruit in people's lives and we can call them out on things for sure. But the Apostle Peter here does something and he says, your heart is not right before God. Rather than repent of his sin for forgiveness, as Peter calls him to, this Simon man asks Peter to pray for him so he can escape the consequences of his sin. This is a sign 
of someone who doesn't get the gospel. Fear of consequences without taking personal responsibility. Um, that's, that's a selfish thing. I just don't want to go to hell. Pray that I don't go to hell. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, this text is getting more and more disturbing. But it's very enlightening for us today. How many people do you know that have been baptized but don't have any love for Christ? They may say they're Christians, but deep down Christianity is just cultural for them. They just go to church to keep their parents happy. We must continue to pray for these people and call them to repent like Peter does. We can call them to repent. We can say even, I'm, I'm, you can say, I don't think you're a Christian. Certainly you can say that, but we just don't know people's hearts, right? We can call them to repentance and we can say, I don't think the way you're living and the loves that you have in your life are at all in step with what a Christian loves. And while we may be burdened for these people, don't let this discourage you from continuing to share the good news with others. After all, the good news is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's what the Apostle Peter and John did next. They kept going. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Samaritans had come to Christ. That's big news. That's breaking news. That's fulfilling Christ's promise in Acts 1.8 that the church would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The early church brought the message wherever they went, even to the Samaritans. The gospel appears to have made inroads and racial reconciliation was being taken place. These were the same apostles that were shocked when they saw Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. Remember that? I mean, talking to a Samaritan woman for? They were prejudiced, racist, they had racist ideas. But then, the Gospel blasted away at some of the prejudices in their hearts. And Peter was a slow learner. As we see in his life, he has to continue to learn that there is, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between those who are in the Jewish community and those who are not. All can receive the message of Christ. So the sovereign God in this passage and in the book of Acts is evangelizing the world through his church. Through an ordinary Christian man named Philip who couldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. You understand now why there was much joy in that city, right? There was much of Jesus in that city. What about Ottawa? Can this text guide us as a church in our city? Now, on my work contract, many of you don't know what it says, and that's fine, but I just want to tell you one of my responsibilities as a pastor here 
it states that one of my responsibilities is to oversee the church's outreach ministry in the neighborhood of Old Ottawa East, surrounding schools, and housing developments. I love that responsibility. And I've been researching, networking, brainstorming, and praying about opportunities for months. And you're going to start to see some of those roll out in the next, um, in the next year. Some of these um, things that we try with the gospel to reach our city, uh, they may wo- wonderfully work, and we may be very effective in them, and some won't. Some won't, but hopefully you don't mind giving me the, uh, the freedom to experiment with you. Um, what I'm planning on doing, so some of you came to the prayer meeting a few months ago, or a month ago, I guess. We prayed much for our city there, and that was, that was a special time. Um, and you'll hear about many other opportunities and different ways that we're trying to do outreach as a church. My aim is not simply to do evangelism by myself. Now, Philip does that here, I understand, but the church was scattered, you see. My plan is actually to create a culture in our church here where evangelism is normally and regularly happening like it was in the book of Acts. Normally and regularly happening. Circularly, it just continues to happen. We're, we're gathering on Sunday and we're scattering out throughout the week and we're doing evangelism and So I ask that you would pray with me, pray for me, and join me by reaching out with the gospel in our city and in your relationships. Because that's really where the rubber hits the road. The hard, difficult relationships that we have. We have opportunities to share the gospel, to do good deeds, to give opportunities to to love people. And those are the things that we need to be about as a church. Some of you may recognize the name Tim Keller. He was the pastor of Redeemer in Manhattan for about 25 years. What you may not know is that in New York City, when 9-11 happened, churches ballooned for weeks after the tragedy. And Redeemer swelled from 2,000 people to about 4,000 people. And other churches swelled quickly, but almost as quickly, people started leaving those churches. But Redeemer kept growing. Tim Keller said, if your church was not ready for non-believers before they arrived, you were not ready for them when they arrived. If your church was not ready for non-believers before they arrived, you were not ready for them when they arrived. In God's sovereignty, this massive tragedy of 9-11 brought an opportunity for evangelism to the church's doorstep. And because they were ready, they just kept growing and growing. The church could seize the opportunity if you were ready for non-Christians. The question is, are we ready? Calvary Baptist Church. If our loved ones, neighbors, co-workers, close friends start flocking to our church, are we ready to embrace them together as a church where a culture of evangelism is regularly and normally taking place? Are we a church that trusts God's sovereignty with our evangelism? then let's be a church that opens our hearts and opens our mouths to outsiders with the gospel, inviting them to church, embracing them when they come. And if we do, just wait for the outbreak of joy in Ottawa. Let's pray. Father, your son is precious 
beautiful, lovely, extremely kind. He saves sinners. He loves them. He lived for them. He died for them. He rose again for them. And He's coming back. We pray now, Lord, that You would give us a heart for You, Your sovereignty, and evangelism. Change us, Lord. We know that we can't do this alone. We can't do anything without You. But give us opportunities to share with our loved ones creative ways to, to say the message of Jesus to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.